I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hope everybody's doing well today. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed podcast today. And today we have a guest calling in from San Diego, California. He is a author. He is a current lawyer. His name is Justin Brooks. How you doing, Justin? Great. Pleasure to be with you today. Glad you could call in and uh, very interesting uh, twist of events in your life and seem like you're very thorough about knowing law and the ins and outs. And now you have a book that's out that has a very interesting title. Uh, you might go to prison even though you're innocent. How are you so proficient in law and, and put out a book with that type of title? <laughs> well, I've been a practicing lawyer for the past 32 years. I founded the California Innocence Project. 25 years ago. And since then, I've been freeing innocent people from prison. Uh, and what I've learned in my three decades of doing this work is that even though statistically, based on your race and your gender and your socioeconomic class and where you live, the statistics change of how likely it is that you'll end up in prison, even though you're innocent, that anybody can end up in prison, yeah, even though they're innocent. And I've seen it happen time and time again. What is the glitch? In the system, <laughs> yeah, glitch is a is an understatement. There's a there's a pretty large gap in the system that leads innocent people to go to prison. And my book is broken down into ten chapters, and each chapter I explore um, cases I've worked on and a particular cause of wrongful conviction. So, for example, one of my chapters is called "You Look Like Other People in the World" because I've walked several people out of prison who went to prison based on misidentifications. And that's one of the leading causes of wrongful conviction in the United States. A lot of that's to do with you know, bad procedures the police use for identifications. But some of it's just fundamentally how poor our memories are in retaining that information. And particularly, I've seen a problem with cross-racial identifications. I've walked six people out of prison who were convicted based on cross-racial identifications. And we're basically, just as humans, not very good at identifying people not of our own race, if we haven't had significant exposure to that other race, and at a very young age when we're developing our facial recognition software. So, you know, there's bad confessions due to techniques that are used with how confessions are obtained and the fact that most of them aren't recorded in the United States. There's problems with forensic science. There's problems with lawyers. Um, and I go through all these problems throughout the book. I mean, do you think it's just trying to fill a void? You know, if there's a crime out there and cops are looking for somebody, do you think a lot of times they're just trying to fill a void? I mean, I think there is a lot of pressure to solve crimes. I think often police come up with a conclusion early on in an investigation and then only see evidence that confirms that. That's kind of human nature. It's what we do all the time is we have beliefs and then we look to things to confirm our beliefs. And a perfect example of that is most police are trained using the read technique to obtain confessions. And the read technique is not focused on getting the truth. It's focused on getting the suspect to agree with you. 
So after hours and hours of interrogation using this psychological technique, people end up confessing who are innocent. And we now know that 17% of people later exonerated by DNA confess to crimes they didn't commit. And that's one of the biggest hurdles we find in our work is that the average person doesn't think they would confess to a murder they didn't commit. But we know through these techniques that people often do. Do you think that Law enforcement looks at the foundation of people and and kind of track back to who they are and and what they're about, what their lineage is. I mean, because I think sometimes you got to understand where these percentage started, right? Because I think if you look, if you track back someone's life and their lineage and walk through that, uh, do you not think they can get more information about who someone is in the foundation? Well, police make assumptions about things like I'll, I'll give you an example. I represented a guy who was convicted of robbing an office depot and the police, when they came to the scene, the robber had worn a mask, but the robber knew who the manager was. Now, it's pretty easy to figure out who the manager is of an office depot. Next time you're there, just look for the person in the red vest instead of the blue vest. But because the officer thought it was an inside job, they then ran a background check on everyone who worked there. My client came up with a prior drug charge, so then they focused on him. And then they just walked around the store and said, hey, does it sound like this guy, Jason? And one person said, yeah, it did sound like Jason. And he got convicted based on a voice identification, but it was based on the assumption made that the guy with the criminal record is probably the guy who did it. And fortunately... I was able to use a video of the robber entering the store and calculate that the actual robber was six inches taller than my client and was able to exonerate him. But yeah, the the police make a lot of assumptions and there's a lot of bias. We all have bias that we use every day. And that is the chapter 10 of my book looks to all the racial disparity, for example, in terms of convictions of both the race of defendants and the race of victims, because, um, Typically, when white people are victims, there is a different response in this country to when people of color are victims. We see that every time, for instance, a white woman goes missing, it becomes a big news story. And then if she's found dead, it becomes a bigger news story. And then prosecutors often step into the spotlight of that big news story and then push for heavier sanctions. So it's uh, all those things implicate our criminal legal system. And, you know, it's built by humans. It's run by humans. Humans are imperfect, and so all those frailties, you know, seep into the system. Well, you said something bias, and I have this thing that I'm a clear sentient, and I can feel things and so forth. And I've got into this quantum physics a little bit, and different information coming through. And and if you looked at the subconscious, right, and when we're born, and if people understood how your subconscious was programmed from day one of your life, and then you get to a certain point in life where your unconscious bias starts responding a certain way, you know, because that subconscious is like a computer. And in actuality, the bigger your subconscious, the more your subconscious is programmed, it's, it's harder for human beings to get to consciousness. Do you think if law enforcement on both sides of the fence could understand how subconscious is programmed, could help them make better decisions on personnel, you know, from someone who they think may be a criminal or may not, or someone they may hire to be a police officer? Because that tells a lot about who someone is, and I don't think that's ever really been looked at. Yeah, I think we we all need to be aware of our unconscious bias and just, first of all, accept the fact that that's reality. 
And in fact, bias, we need bias to function as humans. Every time you turn a doorknob, it's based on bias of your prior experience turning doorknobs. And so bias is just, you know, what is your life experience to that moment and how it influences your actions. And the more we can become aware of that, the more we can do something about it. But in my book, I, I look at a study where they use virtual reality to have different people watch trials. And the only thing they change in those trials is the race of the defendant. And they found wildly different results in terms of verdicts and sentences based on the race of the defendant. And, you know, if, if we're aware of it, we can start remedying it. I don't think we can fix it. I think as long as humans are part of all processes, they're, they're going to be subject to those kinds of biases and unconscious thinking that is, is difficult to control. But I think the more we're aware of it, the more we can do something about it. Well, I'm saying, let's say you as a deputy get hired, you come in, they put something in front of you and they line up this thing about your subconscious and, and things you may lean to based on race or who you are and so forth. You think that would help kind of start the process? I mean, did they do anything like that? I'm sure there's some places somewhere that do training in, in that capacity, but not much at all. And I think the general public also is not really aware of those things. I had a unique experience in my own personal life in that, um, you know, I grew up in New York and Philadelphia. And then when I was 12 years old, my parents moved to Puerto Rico and I found myself the only, you know, white kid in an all Puerto Rican high school and not speaking Spanish. And uh, it was a eye opening experience for me to be in that position and how it started to change the way I saw a lot of things. But everyone brings their own life experience to to everything we do. And we all have unconscious bias and we all have have different ways of seeing things. And if you'd asked me a question, you know, 25 years ago, <clears throat> do I think police are intentionally setting people up? I would have said, yeah, absolutely. That's still true that that sometimes happened. But I believe life is a bell curve where, you know, there's a small percentage of the population that are extraordinary at what they do. Most of us are good to okay, and then there's the terrible and the horrible, which is a small percentage, whether you're talking about plumbers or police officers or lawyers or anything. And I think most people try to do the best they can in their jobs, but you can't really get rid of those biases, and you can't even suppress them at all if you're not consciously aware of them and really thinking about them. Is there any one thing that you can see on the surface that you would change or try to change that's not changed? Well, about the criminal justice system, my whole book is about that. So in each chapter, I identify a cause of wrongful conviction. And then I talk about here are the things we can do to make that better. So for example, in California, we got a law passed that police officers who know who suspects are can no longer participate in lineups. Because what happens is you have an officer in the room who knows who the suspect is, and everybody else in the lineup is just a filler. And they're horrible poker players. They always have tells. And sometimes, even when they don't say anything, as soon as the witness picks someone, the witness will say, kind of looks like number three. And number three is the suspect. The officers will always say things like, good, good job. We got them. And now when they go to court, they say, I'm 100% sure it's that guy. And they were never 100% sure that was all just the bias built and the contamination in the process based on what the police officers knew and then passed on to the witness. And I see that time and time again, that kind of contamination in the processes. Um, so they're really poorly done. And those often lead to wrongful convictions of innocent people. 
give us one more example. I don't want you to tell your whole book, but I like that. That's interesting to me. I'd like to know maybe another one here, if you, if you don't mind. Sure. Well, the first chapter of my book starts with you hired the wrong lawyer <laughs> and how little people really know about the process of defense attorneys, the difference between public defenders and private lawyers. And it's really what got me into this work is I read in the newspaper 27 years ago about a woman on death row about to be executed and she was sentenced to death on a plea bargain. So I actually went and saw her on death row and she told me that she was innocent. So I said, you're innocent. You're, you're scheduled to be executed and you pled guilty? Yeah. And her lawyer had told her her best option was to plead out. And it took me 25 years to get her death sentence reversed and get her released from prison. It ended up she was factually innocent. And she just like slipped through a giant crack in the system because she'd been assigned a really great public defender, but she didn't believe a public defender was a real lawyer. So she just hired a guy in the neighborhood who had a little office and never handled anything like this before. So I talk about in the book how we need to really, you know, change the way our criminal defense system works, how lawyers are appointed, how lawyers are paid. And so there's that kind of practical stuff I talk about. But then I get into a whole chapter of all the junk sciences that have convicted people and the psychology of why that happens with jurors, because jurors often look look to who is the most impressive expert, not who has the best science. And there's this sort of CSI effect we've seen from people watching too much television, but they actually start believing things like forensic odontology, which is bite mark evidence, um, is legitimate science. And the truth is, there's just these very impressive dentists that take the stand and talk about the Ivy League education they have. And they then they tell the juror, this bite mark matches this bruise on the body. And it's absolutely junk science. But jurors mm -hmm. go along with them because these people sound impressive. They've got good resumes. Um, we see the same thing in arson investigations where there's really no science behind a lot of what they're testifying to. Um, and people get convicted of arson when they were accidental fires. We see a lot of horrible shaken baby death, wrongful convictions where doctors come in. And as soon as they see these three symptoms that also can be linked to things that aren't abuse, they testify that they think it's an abuse case. And the jurors are just sitting there like, these are doctors. They're telling me it's an abuse case. I'm going along with that. And that's why now in, in the past 25 years, we've documented more than 3,300 um, wrongful convictions in the United States. And those are just the tip of the iceberg because those are the lucky ones where there were evidence still existed that could prove their innocence. There's many more innocent people who are sitting in prison right now. It's, it's something that Avi Loeb, who's a theoretical physicist at Harvard, told me. He said a lot of a lot of scientists that he works with that are in the spotlight may make a conclusion just because they're in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. So that kind of speaks to what you're saying, you know, that if they're on, in the spotlight and have to make a decision, that conclusion may not be right or wrong, you know? Yeah, that's exactly what happens. They get hired on as experts. They make a conclusion and they run with it. And, you know, lawyers have big egos. Doctors have big egos. It's hard to, hard to get them to back off it. I had a client who spent 20 years in prison because this forensic odontologist, this dentist who's an acclaimed dentist, um, some people think he's the best guy in the world. He identified bodies at 9-11 in New York. He was in the Ted Bundy trial, all these high-profile trials. But when I had him look back, at testimony he'd given 20 years earlier, he admitted that he'd made a mistake, that he shouldn't have testified that it was a match. And we got him fortunately to come back into court and recant his prior testimony. But the jury just looked at him and said, 
look at this guy. He's incredibly impressive. He's given the opinion. He thinks this is a match. And they send my guy to prison for murdering his wife when he was totally innocent. Let me ask about red tape. I mean, is there really that much red tape? When you look at something, I can look at, you know, making a movie or production. And sometimes you go on a production and you're sitting there and you're wondering why when you show up for your call time, you sit around for three hours and then finally go on set. Is there not a way to speed up paperwork? Is there really that much work that causes these major delays to try to get something done or overturned? It shouldn't. Um, and fortunately, we're finally starting to get cooperation from prosecutors after, you know, us thousands of cases where we're releasing people from prison. And some of the more progressive prosecutors around the country are starting to work with defense lawyers to cut through the red tape, to cut through all the court processes and just go to court together and tell a judge this is an innocent person. This conviction should be reversed and this person should be released. And I've done that a number of times with the San Diego district attorney, with the Los Angeles district attorney. I had one out in Riverside County where the district attorney joined me in a motion, but it's still rare in the United States. And the culture between prosecutors and defense attorneys is not good. It is exactly what you see on TV and in movies. It's often a war, antagonistic. And particularly, I find in California, when I go to these small towns out in the desert and I say, you know, you know that case you worked on for years and built your whole career around? Well, I think you got it wrong. And, you know, it took me a few years living in California to realize it gets weirder the further you get from the water. But when you get out to those desert counties, it feels like 100 years ago in some of them. And they fight us to the bitter end on most of the cases we have. And that's why I have cases that's taken me decades of litigation to free people. And I knew they were innocent 20 years ago. And it still took 20 years to get through all the litigation. Did you ever think Greg Kinnear would play you in a movie? <laughs> I absolutely did not. When I was in college, I watched Greg Kinnear in Talk Soup and then in all the movies he did. And um, it was a really surreal experience having somebody play you in a movie at all. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Uh, Greg Kinnear is a great guy, though. I got to know him really well. He's been very supportive of my project. He came and sat in on my classes, and people kept asking, why is Greg Kinnear sitting in your classroom and following you around? Uh, <laughs> and then we did this Brian Banks movie that's now on Hulu. If people want to watch it, it's still on there, about that wrongful conviction. And one chapter of my book is is called, you know, Somebody Lies, because mm -hmm. a lot of people just go to prison basically on a simple lie. And in Brian's case, which the Brian Banks movie is about, 
myself that Greg Kinnear is in playing me. Brian was one of the best high school football players in the country. He was on his way to USC on a full scholarship. Everybody said he's going to the NFL. And one day, if he's 16 years old, his 15-year-old classmate says he raped her. And there's no investigation. Nobody checks it out. Even though there's no DNA found, even though she claimed he ejaculated, um, and it wasn't a late report, the report was done literally right from the school where she claimed that it just happened, and they did a rape kit and found nothing. Uh, but he sits in juvie for a year, shows up at trial, day of trial, his lawyer says, I got a great deal for you. If you plead out, I might be able to get you probation. If you go in that courtroom right now in this trial, it's an all-white jury, you're a big black guy, you're going to get convicted. It's going to be your word against hers, and you're looking at 44 years to life. So she said, make your choice. Possibility of probation or dying in prison. And he's a kid. He's a teenager. He's crying. He says, can I talk to my parents? They're right outside. And she says, nope, make the decision right now. And so, of course, he decides to plead. He doesn't Uh get probation. He gets six years in prison. When he gets out of prison... This woman contacts him on Facebook. Facebook friend requests him, the girl, now woman, who claimed that he raped her and says, can we let bygones be bygones? I'm sorry I made that stuff up about you raping me in high school. And she recants the whole thing. And fortunately, we got her on video recanting. And fortunately, I got the district attorney in Los Angeles to agree with me that he was innocent. And we went into court and got his conviction reversed. And he ended up playing for a short time for the Atlanta Falcons. But when he did a tryout for the San Diego Chargers, the coach said to me, if this kid had gone to USC instead of going to prison, had played at USC and then gone in the NFL, he wouldn't just be in the NFL now. He'd be a Hall of Famer because even after 10 years of not playing football and only playing up to his junior year of high school, he still has the ability to play in the NFL, which was just ridiculous. So yeah, that's another heartbreaking case. Very simple, though. A simple lie and a failure to investigate it sent him off to prison. And let's talk about Justin. I mean, your mom and dad, you said you're from the Philadelphia, New York City area. Yeah, my dad's Australian. My mom is British. And they came to to New York in the 60s. My dad was a was a professional tennis player, but not hugely successful. He became a school teacher. Both my parents were school teachers. And then when I was in high school, we moved to Puerto Rico. They were teaching English down there. And uh, I spent all my formative years in Puerto Rico and then moved to Philadelphia for college and D.C. for law school. And then I started practicing as a criminal defense attorney in Washington back in the back in the early 90s during the height of the crack wars in D.C. What has led you down this road now, the passion to, uh, to do what you do? currently you know what's the what is that drive it really was that 27 years ago reading about this kid on death row um who had been sentenced to death on a plea bargain and i started investigating her case and on the first day of investigating it i found out that the only eyewitness was lying she said she saw this shooting from her apartment in chicago I went and stood in front of the apartment building and it was impossible to see what she said she saw. And as I got deeper in the case, I realized, you know, this kid was on death row and innocent and nobody had given a damn about it and done any investigation and just chewed her up in the system. So at that time, I was teaching law school in Michigan. I I quit my tenured faculty position and I moved to California because that was the biggest prison system in the United States. And I started the California Innocence Project. And the idea was that I would investigate cases of innocence. I'd do it with students. And it started with just me and a half-time assistant and 10 students. And now I've got 10 lawyers. I've got about 100 volunteer lawyers who work with me. I've got 40 to 50 law students at any given time. 
and we investigate cases all over the state of California and get into some people out of prison. And I've also been doing this work in Latin America because I live right on the border and I speak Spanish from, from growing up in Puerto Rico. And so I've started 35 innocence organizations from the Mexican border all the way down to Chile and Argentina. And we're down there freeing innocent people from prison. So there's nothing better a lawyer could do, to be honest. I mean, the feeling when you walk somebody out of prison who's innocent and bring them home to their families is just indescribable. And mostly about being a lawyer is, you know, pushing paperwork around and trying to get people more money and things like that. And, uh, but this work is just, it's got incredible highs. Of course it has incredible lows too. I lose cases. There's cases that keep me up at night where I can't get these people out of prison. It's not really a job. It's much more of a mission that I was drawn to. Interesting. And, and is there anybody, I mean, there's anything like this ever been in, in the lineage of your family at all? I mean, no, <laughs> oh, really? No. I mean, when I was a kid, my dad had a lot of bankrupted business at businesses and it always seemed like the lawyers did okay. So I think mm -hmm. that might've motivated me to become a lawyer. But then when I was in law school, uh, one of my professors took our class out to a prison and uh, I started talking to the guys who were locked up and they were asking me questions. And I said, I don't know the answers, but I'll find out and come back. And I went back and I started teaching in a prison when I was in law school. And I just got drawn into this whole world and saw all the problems with it and how much work we needed. You know, I mean, people talk about how we have too many lawyers, but let me tell you, we don't have enough lawyers that are doing public interest work, that are doing things to make our system better. Um, we could use a lot more of those kinds of lawyers. So I'm very lucky I get to do something I love every day and I, I get paid as a law professor. I, I actually don't take a salary from my work doing innocence work. Uh, I just get paid as a law professor and I do this as uh, my passion. How do you take a case? What is there any parameters or understanding that you have before you take a case? Sure. So we receive thousands of letters a year, as you can imagine. Um, we have a whole process where a questionnaire will go out to the prison. It'll come back in with all the information we need. We'll get a copy of the appellate briefs in the case. There'll be a law student that will read through all those documents and do an intake memo. If we think it's a case that has a possibility, it moves to the second phase where we do more serious investigation. There'll be a presentation done on the case. I have me twice a week. We do presentations where I have the awful Caesar-like thumbs up or thumbs down whether a case proceeds. It's a sort of funnel where we go from thousands of cases to hundreds of cases to the cases, you know, that are, that we're going to take into litigation. And if we're lucky, you know, we walk two or three innocent people out of prison every year in my office. There's now, when I started doing this, there were only five or six of us doing this in the country. We now have 60 innocence organizations around the United States. We've got about a hundred around the world and we're all doing the same thing as we're looking for those needles in the haystack and working to get them out of prison. Wow. Well, we're good for you, man. Um, now the book, uh, and I'll look at the title because it's a long title. You might go to prison even though you're innocent. What is your goal with the book? I mean, obviously bringing awareness to what you do. And is there anything that leads up to anything here in the future and so forth? Yeah. So I, the, the, the whole a frustration led me to writing this book. And that was when I started this work, I'd have a lot of people telling me there's nobody innocent in prison. And you'd hear that all the time. And then DNA came along and that was proven wrong over and over again as we were freeing innocent people. 
So now we've got 3,300 documented cases of innocence. But I still think the general public has an idea that it can't happen to them. Like, this is what happens to other people. This is what happens to people who live in certain neighborhoods. This is what happens to poor people of color. It's not going to happen to me. And I wanted to give examples to PC people to get people to see, for example, Kimberly Long's story. She's a white nurse, lives in the suburbs, who came home one day and found her boyfriend beaten to death. And what I've seen in my experience is if you're in a relationship with someone who's killed and there's not a clear line to who did it, you are going to be a suspect because most homicides are domestic violence. And so the police are always looking at that person. And there's example after example after example in the book of how that happens. So I first want people to understand it could happen to them. It could happen to their family members. And I want them when they become jurors to be better jurors. And I want them when they're voters to really think about politicians' policies and whether they really make the system better or they're just nonsense to get them elected. So I spent a lot of time talking about that and the reforms we really need. Um, you know, we're at the point where we have the largest prison system in the world in the United States. We lock up the highest percentage of our population than any other country in the world. We have 70, more than 70 million people in the United States have an arrest record. Wow. And that's crazy when the richest country in the world is locking up more of its citizens than anyone else, when there's a direct connection between poverty and crime. Why is the richest country locking up more people than anyone? We have to start asking ourselves those questions in order to start solving some of these problems. So that's what the book is about. It's about to educate people on that. And you can find it on Amazon.com or any bookstores and you can go to you might go to prison.com and find a lot of information about the book and videos of people I've walked out of prison and different information that kind of backs up everything I'm talking about in the book. And I'll say that I just want to say this because it kind of hit me as like if you look at the criminal justice systems foundation, has that narrative changed at all in the past 10, 20 years? That narrative hasn't changed in 10,000 years. I mean, <laughs> think about it. It's like. We, we had this one punishment, which was put people somewhere away from us, right? Yeah. That's been going on forever. And there's just no creativity to it. Like when I teach criminal law, I tell my students, our criminal legal system is similar that if your daughter stole a cookie in the kitchen, went and took a cookie she wasn't supposed to take, and you said, go to your room for an hour, or if your daughter killed your son and you say, go to your room for a million hours, that's how much yeah. creativity we have. It's basically everybody goes to the same place, but for different levels of time based on what they did. I mean, there's just no creativity to that and no notion that that's going to make people into better people. I mean, if the response is the same for every action, how can it possibly be effective? So, you know, yeah. we have to be more creative in thinking it through. And we've made so many colossal mistakes I mean, if you look at the prohibition period, we realized, well, we can't regulate alcohol, so let's amend the Constitution again and say it's okay to have alcohol. And mm -hmm. now we've gone through the same thing with the war on drugs. You know, we're like 100 years later, and we're doing the same failed experiment where we just had these massive drug sentences. We lock up a whole generation. We spend billions of dollars on enforcement, and we're losing that war in the same mm -hmm. way we were losing the war on alcohol. And so we need to be more pragmatic. We need to be more utilitarian. We need to ask the question of why is almost everybody who goes to prison that we let out going back to prison three years later? Because that's the statistics. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we make things harder for people when they come out. Now they have fewer skills. Now they have a criminal record. Now they didn't get any training in prison or any education. And we expect they're going to be good citizens. So like, yeah. we're not pragmatic enough. We, we respond with emotion. Oh, yeah. And we respond with politicians who want to get elected by saying they're tough on crime. And that's not what makes sense. In fact, one of the things I always talk to Democrats about is I say that, you know, Democrats, when somebody says to you, if somebody killed your family, would you want them to get the death penalty? Just say you would, because yeah. there's nothing wrong with that human response. But that doesn't mean that's what the government should do. Those are two separate things. So even though if somebody killed my wife or my children, I would want them dead. Should our government respond the same way an angry, emotion-driven human being does in a situation? No. We need to be more pragmatic about things, and we need to do things that are best for society and not just easy sound bites that get people elected. And we've made a lot of mistakes that we can turn back. I do agree. Uh, I create this philosophy called finding a perfect audience. And, uh, you know, it kind of identifies that all the bad decisions are made when people are in an emotional place. And I think if people could understand that and look at data, you know, and, and try to cater data to the situation, then you're going to have a more... Um, focused deal, which, you know, if you have a standard process and you put everything in that funnel, that standard process, you're going to cut some knees out from under a lot of people. So, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You're exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think I, I like, I love the way you said that, because I think if people just looked at their own lives and said, you know what, when I make really emotional decisions, they're not the best decisions. Mm-hmm. And now apply that to our political processes where politicians try to get us emotional. They try to get us fired up. They tell you some horrible story about a murder happened in order to convince you to have really policies, po- you know, policies that don't make sense because mm-hmm. they're using the politics of fear. And the politics of fear is very, very powerful. And when people are making decisions based on being afraid, they're often not good decisions. And whether that's in your own personal life or our governmental decisions, it's not a good idea. Well, I think us as society, we feed off what we see. And and I think we've run out of narratives. And if we continue to feed off what we see, you're always going to have opinions and controversy. And if people realized if they created new environments with new ideas, you eliminate opinions and you eliminate controversy. And uh, I kind of think that's where we're at in the country, unfortunately. But, you know, maybe we'll get there. And maybe, you know, things like you're doing for the criminal justice system can get us there. Yeah, I just think we need to, you know, first of all, we need to talk about these things with each other. I, I've never felt I was in a more bifurcated country in my lifetime than right now. I mean, everything people is black or white, people taking sides on teams. And that's not the way that problems get solved. It's like it's either extreme. Um, I love guns or I hate guns. Uh, you know, it, it's always just like two sides to these things and people jumping on it. Like I've been very critical lately of, cause I live here on the border of Biden's policies with the border. And I spend time, a lot of time in Tijuana and it's the worst I've ever seen it. And yet, you know, my Democrat friends are like, well, don't, you know, we don't want to criticize the Democrats for that. That's what the Republicans did. <laughs> I'm like, it's the same border. It's the same stuff going on. It was going on. The Trump administration is going on now. It's just not, it's just not broadcast the same way. It's, it's not no. said with the kind of harsh terms, like build a wall, lock them up, all this, but that didn't change what the fundamental policies are. So 
people have got to look past the slogans and the nonsense and just see what's really happening. But it's, it's getting harder and harder to do that. It's, I feel like, you know, I feel like when I was in the, in the 1980s in college and my friends who were Republicans and conservatives, it was mostly just talking about paying fewer taxes. Now it seems to be like there's a whole litany that you have to adopt in order to have certain labels on your politics. And that's very unhealthy for society, for everyone to just jump into a box and say, here's everything I believe in. It's all the stuff these guys said. That's yeah, not good. Well, that's not thinking. Well, maybe the, the party should be the human party. <laughs> you know what i mean anything that can unify us and that is a unifying principle we are all humans trying to survive on this rock that's floating through this great void and not think about the reality of that and trying to get along i mean the perspective of the universe we're a speck of dust so we really should be in it for each other well cool justin man i appreciate you coming on the show and uh, i love your mission and i think it's uh definitely a game changer for society and hopefully the it'll plant a seed to you know spread as big as possible you know what i mean yeah i hope so too i you know i'll keep talking until my dying breath about this stuff because i do really care about people and our society and our rules and uh thanks for having me on i hope people will check out my book you might go to prison even though you're innocent this has been author and lawyer justin brooks and i'm john edmonds cosma the ceo of bang productions 